Oh, I like that, huh? Yeah. All right. Nope, they're still there. Okay, that's okay. I can't see them. Are they just in the chat? <laughs> no, they're in the, um, like, you know, the React thing at the bottom? Like, I guess I my mouse went over it, and so now there's, like, this, like, big dildo full of smiley faces, and they're all doing stuff. Maybe I should just click it. See what happens. Oh, fuck. Nope, now it's gone. Okay, cool. Go. I did see that All one. Right. <laughs> it gave me like a little heart on the screen. Yeah. Good. Everything's fine now. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, man. No, this is awesome, dude. I actually, I wore, I wore the cutoff in, in honor of you. Woo! <laughs> fucking yeah, dude. No facts. Check uh, you out. I've had this fucking shirt since probably seventh grade. Isn't that fucking crazy when you see, like, shirts in your closet that you've had longer than any relationship you've ever been in yeah. or anything, dude? And they're, like, old band tees. Trust me, my wife is, like, begging me to throw this. I have this one, and I have, like, a social distortion tee from, like, the same era. And they're both, like, starting to fall apart, like, totally, even after. Totally. And my wife's yeah. like, will you please just throw that out? Like, it looks horrible. And I'm like, but it's it's my no effects tee. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah dude i have a social distortion shirt that like i the the 1945 I, album cover oh i do have that one. i would say that's the that's one not, that's the one that's I got, not the yeah. one i was talking about yeah but um <clears throat> yeah those are the only two i have i have the um the atom bomb fucking thing and then i have the uh just regular logo like the <laughs> dancing skeleton guy but i had that on i had to have been 17 and i went and painted some dude's house like it was just some like odd job and i took the paint roller on accident and fucking like went down the front of me with it <laughs> so there's this big like white streak down the, the center of the fucking shirt and um that's the only way i know i'm like oh yes I had this shirt on my body when I was 17 years old because I remember doing that job. Um, but yeah, and they're all tore to shit. Oh yeah, it's like an aesthetic though. It's like a it's like patina on a t-shirt, you know, like it's yeah, like yellowed pages of a book. But no, dude, you could sell that shirt on eBay for fucking a killing. I was say it's the Decline album too, so I wonder if they were uh, like uh, uh, if they still even make it. Oh right? like... uh, yeah, for real. For real. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. And my guest today is Matt Wall. Matt Wall is a poet, writer, publisher, podcaster, vlogger, musician, and all-around Renaissance man who is the owner and operator of Poetic Anarchy Press and the I Hate Matt Wall Poetry Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts, listeners. And I first met Matt 
when he reached out to me after hearing my own podcast and sent me very nice emails about how much he enjoyed it and how much he'd love the chat. And after our first chat together on his podcast, the I Hate Matt Wall Poetry Podcast, we hit it off. Talked for a few hours about all things poetry, literature, etc. And it felt like 20 minutes, listeners. And we have been exchanging emails and poetry thoughts ever since. And I wanted to invite him onto the Heavy Board podcast here to talk about his career and his business and what I admire most about Matt, his tenacity. Matt Wall is a living, breathing, professional poet. And no, he isn't an academic teacher with a nice tenure salary and summers and winters off. He's a poet who grinds, a poet out there living it and writing it down. That's right, listeners. He makes his living writing, publishing, podcasting, and vlogging, among other things, all about poetry and writing, even offering his own courses and workshops. And he has built a wonderful community of writers, aspiring writers, and just plain fans alike to come hang out and create, seek advice, find readers, a thriving creative community that was built from the ground up. I was astonished at what Matt has been able to build, and I wanted to show my small audience what is possible when you have a deep passion for all things poetry and writing, and don't let anyone or anything stand in your way. Matt Wall embodies that ethos, a punk style of writing and publishing that gives a big middle finger to the establishment and the institutions. I am thrilled to welcome Matt Wall to Heavy Board. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. I've been looking forward to this. Holy shit, dude! Marry me. Like, that was <laughs> that was that was amazing. That was wonderful. Wow, I'm blushing. I'm I'm a schoolgirl right now with her uh, with her shiny first vibrator. Oh, Jesus I find Christ. it best to butter up the guests before before we uh, we get into it with that. Yeah, dude, you had me in the oven and fucking been in there for four hours. Put a fork in me. I'm done. It's Thanksgiving. Let's fucking do this, man. Shit. I believe all of it. Believe every word. Wow. Thank you. That was a lot of nice <laughs> stuff, dude. That was that was nice. Of course. Uh, I wanted to start with the very basics, basically. And, you know, kind of talk about you, your life. And this is kind of a loaded question with a lot of parts, so we'll take it one at a time or whatever. But, you know, okay. what was your childhood like? Uh, were you always a big reader, uh, a big writer? Uh, and on top of that, how did that lead you to finding poetry in your life? And that's mm. a lot. That's a loaded one. You start wherever. We'll knock them down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, honestly, storytelling came to me through action figures oh shit and like having um like my toys and like i was like an 80s kid so like i had like my little like he-man master of the universe guys i had some gi joes um i had go bots you know but i typically did a lot of shit with my he-men guys and it was like i would just go through the house um i usually had to stay with my grandparents um for most of the day because my mom would be at work or whatever and um i would make sure that i always had enough like 
little dudes in my pocket that when I got, um, when I had to go to my grandparents' house, I had something to do. But um, I would just like walk all around the house and like every li- every room was like a different world or a different thing. And I would just like build these stories. And then every time I would go back, I would kind of like, I didn't realize this as a kid, but I was like serializing like my my toys like my i don't know so we would just go right to where we left off like i would end on a cliffhanger like skeletor would kick he-man off the fucking coffee table and like i'd go no <laughs> like him falling to right. then, like i'd go home and then the next time we come to my grandparents house i would start off oh no and then like how does he get out of it <clears throat> and then um I don't know. That sounds really dumb, but then like I was just reading a lot of comic books. Um, there was this like used bookstore um, by my house that had a ton of like Green Lantern and Iron Man and Spider Man and Batman from like the seventies, and so I would just get those and like between cartoons that and um, wrestling. Like that was like how I was taught storytelling. And like, um, was it like you were a comic kid? Like you were always into comics and like the kind of cartoon superheroes and stuff. Um, yeah, but I really dug He-Man more than anything. And the, the He-Man figures would come with like little mini comics. So when I was getting those, and I mean, those started coming out in 83. So I was like five. And I would like read the little mini comics. And then when I saw that there were bigger comics, like taller comics, I was like, oh shit. And um, so I got into stuff that way. But um, like, yeah, this is so fucking nerdy. But like, He Man was like my fucking like entry into anything, which is funny because that was just a um, bad ripoff of Conan. So, you know, and then I don't know. Like, I, I could extrapolate that but um that's basically storytelling and then i started trying to like make my own comic books and i'd come up with my own characters and i would just draw them out and staple them and um because i came up with my own little characters i would draw pictures of them and then like glue them to cardboard on a shoebox and then cut the figures out of the shoebox so that they're hard and I would take those around and I'd just play with like my own action figures. Like everything was like a play. Yeah. And then it would end up a story. Like I would end up writing something about it after. Yeah, I would do the same thing growing up where it was just role play was the most fun game and the one I always wanted to do, whether like whatever type of figure you could put in to scenarios and like create these fictional scenarios where there's. You know, most of the time when you're a kid, you're just like, yeah, you know, like you said, repeating like the the morning cartoons that you saw, you're basically repeating the yeah. plot lines. But like, yeah. that's how it starts, right? Like we start that creative yeah. mind journey and you have like these little symbols. I used to do it with all kinds of shit. Like my sister's Barbies. I had an older sister. She had like, yeah, a huge like Rubbermaid box of fucking, you know, yeah. Mattel Barbie figurines. And I would like set them up. I would rip their heads, yeah. up, you know, whatever it is like. My brother and I would set up shit, and yeah, that's just yeah. Awesome. awesome. It's funny because like I would, um, I would 
trap the bad guys. So like Skeletor or the evil horde or the snake man or whatever, like there would be something that I would have the good guys put them in to where they couldn't come out. Right. And then I would have all the good guys. I would put them up in front of the TV when He-Man would come on or MacGyver or something. And I'd say, now watch this. So you get information that they don't get. And then they would watch the show. And then after the show, I'm like, okay, so we're, we're one up on these motherfuckers now. Let's go, like, fucking take care of it. It's so fucking dumb, dude. But, no, it's just, it's like you learn plot. You learn plotting. And so that's where writing came from and just storytelling. And then as far as, like, poetry goes, um, again, I think the first book of poetry I ever read was probably, like, third grade, um, Where the Sidewalk Ends shell silverstein and that book was so much fun and like i was doing dr seuss and before that i was like like my uncle or my somebody in my family got me this um it was like a dr seuss book of the month thing so every month i'd get like a new dr seuss book and that was cool but where the sidewalk ends was like just this big, massive to me at the time, like a big, massive tome, you know, with like, so it was like a bigger cat in the hat kind of thing. Um, and that just got me into like the fun, like tongue in cheek kind of shit um, with poetry and with rhyme and the whole thing. And then um, Edgar Allan Poe, like, once once you taught that in school like yeah yeah Yeah, and and it was weird too because i remember it was right after the simpsons treehouse of horrors came out with that episode of the raven Raven. yeah yeah yeah. and i don't know if it was like my teacher going oh the kids will know what this is because all of them are wearing bartman shirts to school you know like but um that was like my first the raven was my first like dab into really serious poetry but you know what let me tell you this that same teacher in seventh grade there was this poem that she read and i don't know if it was a full poem or if this was just the part she read and i don't know who wrote it But it was something like, um, and this was during the Rodney King riots and all that shit. And like where we were, I was going to school in Pomona and um, like there was curfews and shit. That's right. You're a California guy listener. So he was literally living in it. Like we all saw clips of the Rodney King stuff. I mean, I was too young even. Didn't know it was happening. Was that 93? Um, I don't don't quote us on that, but <laughs> it was like I want to say ninety one or ninety two, okay, yeah, something yeah. around that. So I was like three years old, uh, but yeah. So Matt lived it; like he was literally looking outside his window in SoCal, and uh, you could see the the riots the, and shit. The only thing I actually saw with my own eyes was um, the gas station on the corner that we would go to all the time was on fire when I was coming home one evening, (laughs) like my parents were bringing me home and like, we saw people in the street, but it wasn't like a lot, but the fucking gas station was on fire. So that was like the one thing I saw. But anyway, so in school, she recited this poem and I'm probably going to fuck it up, but it was, um, 
how or why I can't remember if it was how or why, but like how a minority seizing authority, reaching majority hates a minority. And I can't remember who wrote it or what the fucking thing behind it was, but, um, sorry, loud ass truck trying to come up the hill. Um, but it was the first time that just a few lines of something struck me and made me like go like, Oh shit. Like, I don't know. It just like, it fucking, it did something. And that's when I realized that like this poetry thing could be really like important. It could be really moving. It could make people think. And I think the thing that stuck out with that the most to me was the simplicity behind it. Um, it's just four simple fucking lines that tells you the entire course of world history, you know, and human nature. And um, that fucking blew my mind. So, yeah, I mean, there's always, it's interesting. You mentioned comic books and shit. Like I, I, last time I was back home visiting family and stuff, my, my nephew, you know, kids are, he's probably like 10 and uh, there is, you know, kids are like trying to show you all their shit and stuff when they haven't seen you in a while, and like the uncle mm-hmm. comes over or whatever. He's oh, look at this! Look. And he was oh, showing me all yeah. these these homemade comic books that he was making. And I was like, oh, he's at that age. Yeah, it's where he's yeah. he's figuring out that oh, I can make things up like in my head and then put them down. And I'm like, yeah, like, and he had like a whole little yeah. shelf, you know, like stapled together papers, like you know. There, there's a whole lifetime of pain ahead for that kid. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and so like that, all right, we got that. We got the creativity was brewing in a young Matt wall here, uh, little by little, even if we, he didn't know it himself. And then, yeah, you go to school and you start getting, you know, you kind of the, the, your introductions to the canon and things like Poe and, and all that kind of stuff. And then how, how did the writing come about? What, what did you start? I know you said you're doing comic books when you were younger. How, when yeah. did the writing come about? Was it high school, um, college? Did you? In, in sixth grade, I started my first band and we weren't really a band but it was like the this is so fucking nerdy but like in sixth grade um that was the first time i had cable and so it was the first time i saw mtv and i was like oh shit what's this and it was just like my whole world was like spinning out of control at this moment right and um there was this show called Dial MTV that came on at three o'clock every weekday, hosted by Adam Curry, and people would call this number and vote for what their favorite videos were. And they would have like a top ten countdown kind of thing. Before the days of TRL, where millennials yeah, it, millennials exactly. are familiar with TRL version, <laughs> yeah. And it was when Adam Curry had the hair of a young Marky Post from Night Court. But anyway, um, but the, this fucking video, it was fucking um, Motley Crue, Kickstart My Heart came on. And I remember it was number four. And 
I thought it was so good that I couldn't believe that it was only number four. But anyway, um, but that whole video like just blew my fucking mind about just like fucking rock and roll rock star fucking um, fast living the whole fucking thing. And um, I'm like, okay. I thought Nikki Six was the coolest looking motherfucker on the planet. And I'm like, okay, I need to find a bass guitar somewhere, somehow, some way. This has to happen. And um, my dad ended up giving me an old acoustic guitar that his dad had given to him from fucking who knows when. Um, my my I, my family's like a bunch of fucking, uh, what do you call it? Con men and fucking... Um, <laughs> crazy like lies about <clears throat> so you never know where shit comes from it could have just been like he stole it from the neighbor and gave it to <laughs> me and told this big giant backstory about it but it was like a nylon string guitar and i'm like okay i'm going to learn how to play this thing because i have to fucking write music and fucking be in a band and all this shit so the first things i was writing were songs and um I, I still have this notebook in a box somewhere of just like these cringy ass, like these are the things that people sing about. And I'm in sixth grade. I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground. Um, so, but yeah, and then I was in bands like all through high school and doing little record labels with demo tapes and shit like that. So, and you said mostly punk stuff that you were doing with bands or. Yeah. And it's weird because like, I think even the people I was playing with, like we all wanted to be more like we wanted to be like thrash bands and do all this other stuff, but we just weren't very good. So like we would just, we ended up playing punk. And then after like Nirvana hit and um, Nirvana really opened up the world to like punk that not a lot of people knew. So once we started hearing all these bands that weren't very good but were talented enough to make that work like it was like oh okay so we're just doing this like as soon as like i fucking heard like the germs and gg allen i was like oh god like i really don't have to have any skill at all and this could fucking work and it'd be great but um yeah so that was uh that was pretty much my life for until probably about 2000 and shit five at least you know just being in bands putting out shit and i mean the internet fucking kind of killed my business model that i was kind of living off of so um and i don't think at least as far as music goes that i ever figured out how to not like how do i say this like before 2004 i would say like I could pay my rent off of being in a band. Right. Like I could live off of it after 2004 and like, it just got harder and harder and harder and harder. And it was just like, everything was costing more and I was making less and less money. And th so, that was around when it started. And my history of bands was obviously like literally you said 2005 is when it started. I was literally starting high school then and starting bands. So like I was just getting into like playing local shows yeah. and stuff. 
And I think right around there is when it started to change the model, right? Like if you wanted to play a local show, it was pay to play basically where they would oh, give yeah. you tickets to sell, right? Like That's those pre-sale bullshit. tickets where yeah. basically yeah. you're, and they take a cut out of that because <clears throat> they want to so get... take all of that and they'll yeah. give you a small cut, right. you know? Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's fucking bullshit. And if you don't sell all your tickets, you have to pay for them. So like, it did change it, it. Yeah. Like the pay to play. It, that totally changed yeah. it. Um, I think streaming hurt the Napster, because, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and there was like LimeWire and all this other fucking shit, but it was like the music wasn't the commodity anymore. It was like, what merchandise can you sell to make money doing this? Because the music is now the free gift, and you now have to sell T-shirts and fucking right. pins, patches, and all this other shit but the um the markup on a lot of that stuff wasn't nearly as good as when you order like 4000 or 5000 copies of your album and your the cost to manufacture them are like 79 cents a piece and then you're selling them for 10 bucks or 15 bucks or 20 bucks you know so like <clears throat> that completely fucked it but i will say this myspace was great for music and you were able to find bands. Um, you were able to plan tours the way they had the music player on the page. All that shit was fucking amazing. That MySpace was fantastic. And then um, Facebook blew up and MySpace died. And like nothing has come close to doing that. Because like you had like Reverb Nation and soundcloud and all this other shit but the problem was was that myspace had this shit on a platform that people were already on instead of like i want to hear bands and music i need to go to this site right you know, yeah. like... <clears throat> so when myspace hit that was when my band creeperson took off and those first two years three years like were fucking amazing for creeperson and that's how i got into filmmaking because i started making videos and um then i had the record label so then i was making videos for the bands on the label and then our distributor was um also a film distributor and so then it was like oh hey can we put your music in our films and then that turned into hey could any of the people in your bands act because <laughs> it would be great cross promotion if we could do this and that. And then it was like, can you make a movie? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I can make a fucking movie. I love movies. I could probably do it. And um, then I made that Frankenstein movie. And um, so then that led to 10 years of me making movies. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah. How did that go? <clears throat> that was um, amazing. I made more money doing that than anything I've ever done in my life. Um and it was a really amazing outlet, and I was very prolific. Like, I was making more movies than anybody I knew. Um, I was getting jobs hand over fist. But it's a law of diminishing returns, because when, especially you're working for producers who, like, you're kind of bidding for a job. And it's right. like, well, this guy said he can make this movie for $10,000. How much can you make this movie for? And I'd go through it and I'd go, well, I could probably do it for eight. 
you know? And so every time you start cutting that down, like the next time that producer comes to you, he's like, Hey, remember you made that movie for me for $8,000. Do you think you can make one for $7,000? And so like all these people who I was doing stuff for, it just kept going down and down and down and down and down. And they kept asking me to do more and more work. And then it got to the point where I was either going to fucking murder somebody or fucking kill myself. So I just, I started writing books. Was, uh, was this around the 2008 post-financial crisis? Oh, yeah. When like, the industry um, changed forever, basically. The movies were not, you know, just a cash cow anymore. They were... Yeah. Like, it took... This is the thing that's weird about that. It took a while for that to catch up because 2009 and 2010 were my best years making movies, like, financially. And I was still finding people who were investing in film. And it wasn't until about 2012 that the people who were investing in film finally were like, oh, I'm hit really hard. Like, I don't know why it took so long for that to hit, like, executive producers. Maybe it was just because, like, they had more money, so, like, their money lasted longer. I have no fucking idea. But it was, like, 2012, I totally felt like... I'm like, oh, shit, like, no one's doing good right now. And then that coincided with the Kindle Gold Rush, so I moved to that really easily, and um, I didn't have budget restrictions, and I could write whatever the fuck I wanted to, and I could blow up helicopters, I could blow up planets, like, money was no object, I could do whatever the fuck I wanted to do, and um, that blew my mind, because I had been writing to budget for, like, the last 10 years or eight years. So it was just, it was crazy. Yeah. And I guess we're kind of seeing that now we're seeing that, you know, it's played out in all these different industries. So it's interesting that you were involved in all these industries too. Mm -hmm. So it's like you were involved in the music industry and then the kind of like, you know, the, the internet streaming kind of Napster LimeWire started to blow that business model up. Then you were in the yeah. film and you were doing mostly indie films, right? Like small budget, yeah. like indie stuff. And it was like, all right, like, that was great for a while. And then all like, especially that, like the nineties, early two thousands, yeah. like indie film was fucking thriving. Like it was yeah. like, that was the hottest shit. Then the business model kind of got blown up with the next development with streaming and the internet and these types of services, mm -hmm. DVDs to your house, blockbuster going under like all that oh, kind yeah. of shit. Cause like I was, um, one of the last like long standing jobs I had, I was, a uh, uh, store manager of a blockbuster and I was just like, oh, this whole thing's ending. But, like, when I was making movies and all that shit, and even the first um, few books I put out, I was doing it under the name Creep Creeperson. So, because, um, like, my name's Matt Wall, and there was there's some actor named Matt Wall, and there's a fucking screenwriter named Matt Wall, and... Um, like, people always ask me, I'm like, they're like, oh, did you write Knights of Bad Astem? or whatever that fucking movie's called. I've never even seen it. And I'm like, no, that's not me. Like, uh, I don't, that's some other fucking dickhead named Matt Wall. You know, no <laughs> But all got, my film shit was under Creep Creepers. And, that's cool, yeah. And then you got into the the Kindle publishing and direct to Kindle, right? Like, and then uh, uh, that's blowing up a little bit now too, right? Like, that's like changing, like... Like 2012, yeah, 20, yeah. Like uh, I'm trying to think when the real bubble burst on that. Whenever a company tries to make you pay for ad placement, 
that's when everything's fucked. Right. Because at that point, the only people who are going to make any money are the people who are willing to put in three to $5,000 a month on those ads. And when Amazon started running ads that anyone can buy on pages that other people's books are on. So like if, if I sent you a link to one of my books, you could go there and then on the bottom, like on the same page before you scroll and then off to the side, there's going to be ads for two other books. And it's like, why are you trying to pull people away from a page where people are about to buy something? But they, I mean, Amazon probably makes more fucking money on selling ads to self-published authors than they do on the amount of money that the self-published authors make. If that makes any sense. Oh yeah. So they, I can definitely so see that shit. Yeah. <clears throat> They're not going to do anything that isn't, um, you know, that's going to cost them money. Like, I, I you know people always get upset about that. I'm like, look, like the economic incentives, like we understand them, like we have to work like kind of like within that, like, okay, this changed the game. Now we have to like, how the fuck do we get our art out there? You know, kind yeah. of thing. you have to work within these restrictions, but yeah, man. So, I mean, listeners, as you can hear, I mean, Matt's been doing this for a while and he's been through a couple different artistic industries and he's seen the, the highs and the lows of it here. And my next question was like, is, is that how you got it started poetic anarchy press? And also, you know, your podcast, I hate Matt wall. I had a small press in, around 2007 that lasted a couple years and this was like before ebooks so like it was all print shit or pdf and um a lot of that because it was a part of the record label on top of it that i was putting out books by people who were in the bands so if like Creeperson's drummer wrote this fantasy novel and um, the first book I put out was a um, collection of poetry that was like my Poe phase I guess I'll fucking say like my Poe Tim Burton phase you know and um, that's tied up in the punk stuff that is tied for some reason oh, yeah. Burton is tied up into the kind of 80s 90s totally. punk kind of oh I for mean, real yeah. dude um, and then around that time I had a script for a movie that I was trying to get made and it wasn't really happening. Um, so I wrote a novelization of my script and the first publisher I sent it to like another small press took it <clears throat> and put that out. And that was like, I'm like, Oh my God, this is so easy. Like, look at how like publishing's cake and all this other fucking shit. And um, I never got a fucking dime for that book. And like, I know like copies were made, the whole fucking thing. I never made anything off of it. But anyway. Um, Very and common then, tale, listeners. That's uh, how most, that uh, how it goes for almost all poets and almost all fiction writers now. So yeah, <laughs> even nonfiction now. Yeah. That's how yeah, it goes. And here, here's the thing. Like I had a contract with them. Right. And um, at this time, because I was doing all the horror movies and exploitation flicks and all this other shit, I was going to conventions and like tabling at conventions and selling creepers and shit and DVDs and all this other crap. And 
um, a couple different times I would be at conventions and someone would come up with my book and ask me to sign it. And I'm like, oh, fucking cool. Like the book's selling because this random fucking person just put it in front of me. And then I would ask my publisher, like, what's going on? Oh, yeah, the book hasn't sold. I'm like, it hasn't sold. Yeah, zero copies have sold. I'm like, no copies have sold. And um, then when I thought I was like a big deal because I was in Hollywood and I had an agent, I'm like, I told my agent, I'm like, get my fucking money from this fucking guy. And so she um, sent him some like email that was all legal sounding and everything. And he sent back like one column of like a spreadsheet that just said like my name, the name of the book, and then had uh, the number zero. That that's all the fucking attachment was. It was just this one image that had that. And she's like, "Well, shit, I don't know what we can do." He sent us the proof, <laughs> and I'm just like, "Fucking whatever, Jesus Christ." Um, but yeah. Um, and then once the uh, Kindle thing started happening, I was doing weekly serials um, on Kindle, and that was going amazingly. Um. And then when Amazon changed their algorithm the first time, there was a bit of a bump, like down, but then like things started to level out a little bit. But I realized that because um, I had this book series called Black Star Canyon and I was building my mailing list up around it and the whole fucking thing. And it was very like Twin Peaks meets The Prisoner meets... I don't know, some other fucking days of our lives kind of shit. And um, that's where I built my audience, like my book reading audience. And then because I like to do so many different genres and different things, I started doing different things and my audience didn't like those things. <laughs> and the thing with Black Star is that I always knew it was going to end. And so like I knew I'm like, well, after book five, like it's done. So I got to fucking win these motherfuckers over and like get them happy and buying my other books quick. And I kept putting out all these other books in between the black star books and they just weren't selling like the black star books did. And that's when I got really down on writing. And I was like, this fiction game is fickle as fuck. And I, I don't know if I could do this. And I was really into like old pulp shit and all this other stuff. And so I started a, another press called, um, gold metal faucet off like as a joke of faucet gold metal, like the first like paperback original company. And, um, I didn't have any writers and I just started doing the weird mask zine and um, I'm like, you know what I'll do? I will, all these different genres, I'll just say are different people. And so I had like 12 pseudonyms all of a sudden. <laughs> and I put out like this sampler book that had all these different writers in it. But if if anyone read it, like the, the tone and the voice is obviously all me. But like there were just all these different writers. You know, there was like C.C. Wall, Kurt Joukowsky, um, uh what were some of the other names? Alan Edwards, uh, oh. James Ian Carter, um, Leon Stickley. Um, I don't know. I just had all these different fucking names. And um, 
So immediately I'm like, oh, I have to have different um, email signups for each writer. I need to have different Twitter accounts for each writer. I need to have different social media stuff for each writer. And then pretty soon, like I wasn't doing any writing and I'm trying to keep up social media accounts for 12 different fucking people. And I wanted to fucking kill myself. And I'm like, this isn't working. So, yeah, so that's that. And then, I don't know, like, this is, like, the longest story ever. So then I was doing Weird Mask, and I put that out. It's, like, a short story and serial um, zine and did that for 25 issues. Did this thing called the Time Mazine that was all public domain stuff. And I was, like, serializing Frankenstein in it. Um and just had like a bunch of Lovecraft and Howard and um, Mr. James and shit like that, um, and then just doing the zine publishing over and over again. Um, that really got me looking to chat books and like the whole like how the old mimeograph revolution was and how like the Xerox um, zine days were for me, like when I was in high school <clears throat> and I don't know, everything comes full circle, I guess. You yeah. Know? And then you got into the podcasting game. When did that? Oh yeah. Um, well, I started getting interviewed on a lot of podcasts back in the blog talk radio days, like 2007, 2008, and I didn't really understand what a podcast was, but right. I was nobody I was, did. <laughs> nobody yeah, did. I was back then. on yeah. them, and I just, I still <laughs> didn't fucking get it. And then um, the first podcast I did was called Creeperson Cast, and <laughs> so fucking stupid. And it was just me talking about the movies I made, the music I made, and like what movies I'm watching now. And like what movies I think are good, what music I think is good. Um, I have I a few questions speaking. about that coming up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh shit! No, no. I like to ask all writers. Yeah, like that kind of stuff <laughs> towards the end. But yeah. All right, all right. Um, and then um, I started like branching out, and I did a Friday the Thirteenth podcast for a little bit. I did um, this podcast called Jalo Chow Chow, which I love Jalo film, like from like the late sixties to the mid seventies. That's like my sweet spot. And, um, that show lasted a long time and it actually is still going right now. Um, with, uh, Chris and Al, like two of the other hosts, like they've kept it going the last couple years when I just couldn't do it anymore. <clears throat> and I missed that kind of a lot, but, um, that was a good show. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then I was doing the, I started doing the poetry podcast kind of like how you said, like there just wasn't a lot of people talking about the stuff you liked. And that's kind of like mother's the necessity of invention or evil, or I can't remember how the saying goes. Um, the necessity, no, the, what the fuck is it? The, is the necessity is the mother of invention. Fuck. That took me forever to <laughs> fucking pull out of my ass. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I started a YouTube channel in the first place. Like I wanted to, like I, I started seeing all these people on YouTube doing videos about books and I wanted to have people talk about the books that I liked and no one was making the videos. So I'm like, oh, I might as well do this and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I thought about at least recently, you know, like the Substack craze and stuff that everybody's <laughs> doing. 
And I've seen some writers, you know, they're not, I'm sure they're not making a fortune off of it, but I've seen some that do like small monthly incomes from serializing either in their own creative works or like columns that they'll put on, you know, the discourse is always ongoing with social media. Yeah. Shit, so you can kind of jump in and jump out as you, as you see fit. But like, yeah, I thought about that, especially, you know, it's so hard to go through a traditional publishing route. I've, and I, mm -hmm. I like, you know, we talked about this on our, on your podcast, listeners go listen to it. Uh, the I hate Mount wall poetry podcast. It was like, you know, that kind of, I write, I have literary ambitions, right? So I like to write literary novels, literary poetry, but then I also love, you know, pulp crime shit. I love horror shit. Mm -hmm. And like, so I'll write that too. And I was like, man, you know, agents don't really like that. Like publishers don't really like when you're cross genres like that, unless you're yeah. proven yourself that you can sell in all those genres, like a Stephen King or something. But like, and Amazon hates if you do that. Right, right. They absolutely. Hate which is it. which is why the agents hate it. And the publishers hate it yeah. because they're all chasing Amazon and Google metrics and algorithms. But like, I did think, you know, maybe something like a stub stack is an outlet for the pulp stuff. You could serialize novels that you have and, and, and just, you know, whoever wants to go can go and you can ask for support. And it really would is that DIY. That? What would you do that under a different name? I thought about it. And actually when I, before I, I was actually on Twitter, like anonymously for a while because of all the shit that was going down, you know, like I still, coming out of the MFA and stuff, I thought that you could still have a career the traditional way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, this was probably 2019, 2020. I mean, you know, if you were putting your name and face out there with any opinion that you had or any piece of creative work, I mean, you were putting yourself at risk. That was basically, I mean, at the height of the kind of cancel culture, I guess, I think it's fair to say that at least that like 2020 was like the height of, of mm -hmm. what we call cancel culture. People, I know people argue with that, but still, you know, basically, if you put out a book and people said something about it, you could lose your entire career, and like everything, you know, that yeah. was a pretty extreme time. And it's calmed down since I think. But then I went kind of mask off. I was like, you know, fuck this. You know, I felt like a coward, you know, doing it without real name and face and i was just like yeah maybe i would put it out under a pen name uh, i thought about that too because like you know for the industry they just hate when you're doing out of genre stuff yeah. so maybe I'll if you're hearing this it's because you are listening to the free public feed of heavy board to get complete uncensored uninterrupted full access to this podcast become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board that's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. You know, I, I like Brady Stanellis' podcast. Like, I, I pay for that to listen. And um, he's he talks about this because he said he's written, like, a series of spy novels recently. But they have, like, a female main character. Like, the main spy character is a, is a woman. Yeah. And, uh, he said his agent has already been, like, fighting him about, like, oh, you know, you're a guy. You can't really write. You know, the industry doesn't really like when men write from the female perspective or something. And he was like, well, can't we do it under a pen name? And she was like, you know, you already have a really recognizable brand. <laughs> like, why would we do that? Like, basically And now you're talking over. about it on your podcast. Yeah. The cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. 
so the industry is that's why i'm always interested like worried or like interested at least about the industry because it seems like even the people that had big track records people that are representing authors like brett easton ellis have no idea what they're doing anymore because the world has changed so much. like they have no idea how to market books how to market an author like yeah it's like just... the the actual publishing industry is i would say 10 years behind the publishing consumer and the publishing marketing it's a smart way you to know what it. i'm yeah. saying yeah, yeah. like they'll eventually catch up but by the time they catch up there's already going to be so many other advancements right. that they now need to fucking get on and i want to say one thing because this has Please. been coming up oh, yeah. kind of a lot i want to make it clear that i don't think that going the traditional route with publishing is a horrible thing to do. If someone is gonna give you money to right. put your book out <laughs> yeah. and do the thing, take the fucking money. <laughs> yeah. The problem is, is that with poetry, when I was looking into this and finding out what advances were and all this other shit, <clears throat> the advances were garbage. If, if any. And, <laughs> if any. Yeah. And like, I can make more selling my handmade fucking chapbooks than I could on a fucking advance from a fucking publisher. So the other thing to think about here is if you're doing other shit, then it's probably cool. And if the publisher is giving you an advance that makes your fucking crotch wet, it's probably because you don't need them. Like you're already that famous because your advance is always going to be based on how many books they think they could sell and your agent's job is to always make sure the advance is going to be more than right. the amount of books that you're going to be able to sell. So with all of this said, if you do go a traditional route, what you have to understand is that probably your first two, possibly even three books, the book sales itself and the advance is not what you're going to be making money on. What you're going to be making money on is all the appearances you do getting on talk shows, going here to there, doing book signings, doing um, in-person events, doing all this other shit, that most of that is going to be done on your dime. So you have to realize that for like probably five years, maybe six years, you're just investing into your career. Right. And then if you can do that, then you will start making money from traditional publishing. But if you don't have the personality to be able to go out, because, dude, I, I'm sure you've seen it. There are hundreds and hundreds of authors every year who crash and fucking burn because they realize, oh, I like writing because I fucking hate people. And the last <laughs> thing I want to do is fucking be around them all the time, having them asking me stupid fucking questions when I could be at home drunk writing my next fucking novel about fucking robot dinosaurs having sex with fucking chickens oh <laughs> my god i'm losing my shit now dude but yeah, yeah so that's that's the thing like it's there's a lot in traditional publishing that people don't ever think about and if you want to be traditionally published you also want to be the poster child for right. whatever the fuck you wrote your book about there's a. Uh, I just actually i just read uh hitchens you like chris hitchens memoir hitch 22 uh i'm a big chris hitchens guy and like uh 
he said in that he said one of the some of the first advice he got in the 70s from uh gore vidal of all people when he met him gore vidal said to him as a young man he just said don't ever miss an opportunity to go on tv he's like even if nobody's watching on c-span in the afternoon he's like you need to go Mm -hmm. you need to plug your book you need to plug your ideas (laughs) you need to say hey i'm chris hitchens and i'm here to talk about this you know buy my books kind of read my columns Uh, you know yeah and then when you have your website, you could put as seen on C-SPAN. Right, right. Yeah, you know, like everything is a fucking thing to the next thing. You know, it's... It's a brutal uh, world. And I think that's why I wanted to have you on here and talk about the, the business side of it too with like, because we have listeners, I know, and especially we have, we, I, th- I like to think I have a good mix of listeners that are in the MFA world and then are also kind of in the DIY world. But it's like, mm-hmm. it is a grind. Like it is this, yeah. you have to be constantly selling yourself. You have to be starting businesses and it's just, you know, the days of your grandfather's kind of, oh, you know, even the, the, the minor novels would sell a few thousand copies and you could live off that, you know, make a, a living, not, a, it wouldn't be rich, but you'd be making a, a decent middle-class living or lower middle-class living, just writing pulp novels or something. Uh, you just that's not possible anymore. It's just not possible to do that anymore. Yeah. It has to be all this DIY hands on. And that's frustrating. I get that's frustrating because like you said, a lot of writers do just want to write. They want to do the Cormac McCarthy thing. R.I.P. Yeah. Right. Where he was just like, no, I don't want to deal with any press. I don't want to go to colleges and speak. I just want to write yeah. my novels. And, you know, he was even all the stuff when he died, there were a bunch of stuff that came out about how much poverty he lived in because of that. Like yeah. he literally did not make a living writing books until well into, you know, the eighties or nineties. And he had been writing almost 20 years, you know, as yeah. a, at, I mean, with it, putting out acclaimed novels in that time and yeah. still not making a living as a writer, you know, it's like the same thing with like, like JD Salinger or like how you, you, um, you guys were talking about, um, like gone are the days when like the only people who were writing books were people who already came from wealth. Like they came from family money. So they could just fucking sit around and ponder their fucking thoughts for months on end, you know? And now, now if you want to be the person who only writes books and doesn't really do anything else, this is the shitty thing that no one wants to hear. You're going to have to put out a book almost every three months at least. And in doing that, you're also going to have to be fucking working your mailing list. Like it's a fucking, I don't know, some horrible analogy that you do something awful with, but you're going to have to do both of those things. If you do not want to be the person going out, doing podcasts, doing YouTube videos, doing TikToks, doing Instagram, doing all this shit. Like, if you don't want to do that, you need to write a ridiculous amount, but still have to do your fucking mailing list and shit. Yeah. So. And I, I always bring that up, too, especially when I'm talking, you know, because there is a trend right now where people talk about the author's wealth and stuff. I'm like, look, if we mm-hmm. go back 100 years, just 100 years ago, like, do you know what the literacy rates were? <laughs> like, like you, you could not even read unless you had fucking money, let alone yeah. be a writer, like create stuff for people to read. Yeah, of course, they were all fucking, you know, trust fund kids and stuff that had nothing better to do but go to Oxford and then come back to, you know, like nobody, half the, most of the population couldn't fucking read books. Like <laughs> they couldn't even read a newspaper. It wasn't until yeah. like the forties, fifties with like the literate, most like the Western population, everybody could read. It was just assumed you could read and write. That was not a thing <laughs> until like a hundred years ago. Like, yeah, we forget. 
right. and a lot of that is comes from the pulps and comes from right um faucet gold metal putting out like paperback originals with lurid covers and great titles and exciting action-packed shit for people to read they and those wanted serials, to read yeah, yeah they wanted adventure. to fucking yeah. totally yeah indiana jones right like every, people forget the indiana jones i mean the reason that that was so big is because spielberg and lucas based it off those serials from the 40s and 30s that yep. they were growing up reading and loving these kind of adventure like action hero kind of it's almost fucking it goes back, savage shit yeah it goes back know? to Matt yeah. playing with those dolls you know as a kid you know and uh <clears throat> yeah uh, I wanted to ask you, and you mentioned Poe already when you were young and getting kind of introduced. Who who were some of the first poets you can remember, if you can, that you were enamored with? And then beyond that, just who who would you say are your major influences and in poetry or even fiction? Because I know it's more than just poetry, right? You have yeah. some music influences, even some filmmaking. You mentioned uh, you know Twin Peaks and Lynch and stuff. So for real, um, when. I can't, I can't remember if we talked about this, but did we talk about Henry Rollins when we were... Uh, I think briefly, we yeah, because you were talking about Black Flag and... Uh... Yeah. Well, um, right when I was into poetry, um, like, the Doors movie came out. And so I got a copy of Jim Morrison's Wilderness, which was whatever. Like, I tried really hard to really dig that book. And it just, I don't know, whatever. But then, um, because my parents are like, oh, he's into poetry now, so here. like, So I got a Robert Frost book, and I got a Longfellow book. And I didn't really like either one of them. And that's when I was like, oh, shit. Like, poetry really isn't as cool as I thought it was. Because, like, I have one out of the park, and then three kind of, like, ugh, books. But I still loved Poe, and I there was this record store next to my high school called Bionic Records, and they had this weird little display that had a bunch of weird books. And one of the books they had was Naked Lunch, and I think we talked about that. Um, but they also had a bunch of books from uh, 2.13.61, which is Henry Rollins's um, small press. And they had a bunch of his books and they had like um, Lydia Lunch and like um, Exene from uh, X and shit like that. And I got a couple of Rollins books and I remember doing the like the poetry reading thing at my for my English class in 10th grade and we like turned the library into a coffee shop and it was like this like real like cool edgy beat fucking thing and whatever and like um i played guitar and sang and i remember i did um jesus don't want me for a sunbeam that um, nirvana did on the unplugged thing and i did that and then i read we had to memorize the poems that we did and I did this poem from Henry Rollins out of his book, uh, One from None. And it was, I want to take a screwdriver, mutilate my face, find a woman who loves me for who I am, and then say, I don't need it and walk away. And the poem isn't exactly like that, but that's how I remember it now. <laughs> like, like there's some things that are different in there. 
but when I read that fucking poem, I was just like, fuck, man. Like, that fucking just shook me to my fucking core. I'm like, yeah, dude. I don't fucking need this shit. You know? like, <laughs> And it was, like, really fucking stupid. <clears throat> but that got me really into his stuff. And so I got, like, Bang and um, The Art of Drowning and Pissing in the Gene Pool and... Um, all that shit. And then that got me into like his black coffee blues books and all that shit. And the funny thing is like, I feel like that should have been where I found Bukowski, but I didn't find Bukowski for like decade, like a decade and a half later. Um, but yeah, so for the longest time I was just hanging on Rollins and Poe, you know, and then I started getting into like, when I got into weird fiction, I started reading like Lovecraft poetry and Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith. And then that got me into like um, Lord Dunsany and um, Byron and Shelley and all that shit. And I wanted to like it more than I really liked it. Um, Canterbury Tales um, in high school got me into like the long form epic kind of shit that like blew my mind and um homer and that's when i was like trying to get into fucking milton and paradise lost i would like carry paradise lost around like oh yeah i'm reading this because i'm (laughs) fucking legit and i know poems man and um i'm just like this book i just fucking i don't whatever i just don't fucking care but like i tried to care really hard and just didn't and milton's rough and milton's rough because he's not as good as shakespeare basically so it's always like milton's like I get why they make you always listen, like, you know, read it in school and stuff, but mm-hmm. dude, Rollins had a weird career trajectory too, where like now he's like For hosting real. shows on like discovery channel or something. <laughs> he's yeah. just like this guy. I like, just watched yeah. an inter- It's so funny. I had an interview of his come up last night that was from 10 days ago in Australia. <clears throat> and, um, the host on the morning show asked him the same question you just said, like you've had a really ridiculous career and you've done all this different stuff. And he's like, I used to scoop ice cream for minimum wage working 60 hours a week. And I told myself, I'm just going to say yes to everything because like, why the fuck would anyone give me an opportunity to fucking do anything? If someone's going to take the time to ask me to do something, I'm going to say yes to it. And that's how he's done everything he's done. Um, so yeah, just say yes, guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to kind of take it into your own hands. Uh, but Bukowski, I want to hit Bukowski. You're a big fan. Uh, I am as yeah. well. Uh, when did you first get into Bukowski? Because you mentioned me. It was like, I think I was like 18 or 19, first year of college, and like a friend hands me Pleasures of the Damned, you know? Mm-hmm. His kind of like greatest hits, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, the rest was history. So what what was for you? What was the I, book or what was the... Well, to, like, I just want to say that if I would have found Bukowski when I was in high school or when I was, like, 18 or 19, like, I don't know if I'd be alive right now. <laughs> like, like, I think that would have just destroyed me. I would have just been like, oh, man, 
this is the life. This is it. And then I would just go, oh, so 10 year drunk, huh? Okay, on it. Like, see you guys later. Like, that would have been like my exact life. Like, I don't think I would have come back from that. Dead, dead on a but, park bench. They would have found you, like, oh. breathing on a park bench or something. Like. And I, I wouldn't even have been cool enough to be on the park bench. I'd be under <laughs> the park bench thinking it was a fucking blanket or something like that. But, yeah. Um, no, I didn't find Bukowski until uh, it had to have been 2012. Um, because I was putting out these short stories on Kindle. And... I kept getting like comments in my reviews saying like, if you like Bukowski or if you like, um, I always say this guy's name wrong. Chuck Polnick, Polnick, Polnick. If you like these guys, like you'll love this or, and that always drove me crazy because I'm like, Oh, like, well I'm writing like Vonnegut or like Thompson, right? Like that's, that's what my thing is. So who are these fucking Bukowski and Polnick fucking guys that I don't fucking know? Like, I don't get it. And um, finding a Polnick book was a lot easier than finding a Bukowski thing. And so I read some of him and he just felt like he, it didn't seem like it had any heart in it. Like there was like no soul, like the shit he was writing was cool shit, but it just seemed empty to me and so I didn't like resonate with that and then um I picked up post office and fucking uh, I don't know like I've talked about this so many times but like it began as a mistake yeah. like what the fuck dude are you fucking with me and it just it was so simple and just so direct and there was some shit that was shocking and shit that was boring and, um, but it all worked and it all flowed. And then I read all of his, cause I have to do everything in order. Cause I have like horrible fucking OCD. So I had to read all his novels like in, um, order of release, which pissed me off because I would rather have read them chronologically, you know? Yeah. And then so from there I went to his short stories and started reading all of his short story collections. And it was it's funny cuz once I once I find somebody I like, I will fucking like work that to the bone. Oh, yeah. Like I will not read another fucking thing until I have gone through every single fucking thing. And luckily for everyone, Bukowski wrote like 80 goddamn million fucking books. So it's like, there's always shit to read. But, um, I started reading, um, his short stories. And then I think honestly, what got me into doing my poetry again was the fact that Creeperson wasn't doing anything anymore. I just did an acoustic tour across the country, and it didn't go great, but it didn't go badly, but it was a lot of work and a lot of driving, and it was just me, and I felt very alone and the whole thing. And reading all of these short stories about the poet but not actually reading any of his poetry. I just started like going, you know what? I'm not writing songs right now. Let me just fucking start throwing this shit down. 
And so I think I had put out maybe six or seven chapbooks before I finally got a book of his poetry and started reading his poetry. And when I started reading his poetry, that was it. I was like, oh, my God. And, um, yeah, like, he ruined everyone for me, you know? Like, <laughs> like there's not really a whole lot before or after. I got into Blazik, Doug Blazik, um, through Bukowski, reading Bukowski stuff. And like skull juices is probably my favorite poetry collection of anyone. Um, but after 1980, Blazik changed how he wrote his shit. And then he went back and rewrote all of his shit previously. And then like has condemned all of his old books that I think are fucking amazing. So that kind of breaks my heart a little bit. And the stuff he's put out since I think is just gobbledygook and nonsense you so. mentioned uh you mentioned chuck and uh uh that was formative for me i know a lot of millennials that uh chuck was a very important writer it was yeah. always like i have all his books at least all of his up until uh pygmy was when i stopped buying every chuck chuck palinock book that was coming out but and i guess what was that was that like 2010 2011 ish or whatever i don't know the uh what book of his do i have right there the big ones were choke probably his best i have choke yeah fight club obviously the most famous and then uh lullaby and um survivor probably his uh other big ones and oh and invisible monsters and stuff but i mean you know I remember in the MFA world, there were a lot of people that if you, as soon as you mentioned somebody like a Bukowski or, or a Chuck Palahniuk and his stuff, like there's like a lot of disgust or a lot of uh, writing off where the people were like, well, I don't respect him. I'm like, yeah, well, like this guy, especially Chuck, man, like he's pretty fucking successful uh, and he's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, he's not the most transgressive guy, but he, you can tell he loved those kind of guys. Like he reads that kind yeah. of transgressive stuff all the time and he's, maybe makes it a little bit more palatable for a mainstream audience. Uh, and that's really where his skill comes in and, you know, made himself a lot of money. Although I guess he went on Rogan like a couple of years ago and, uh, I think he lost all his money, right? Like didn't, uh, like an accountant or something like stole like 25 million. Oh shit. I don't fucking know yeah, nothing yeah, about yeah. that, dude. So Fuck. now he has to like, he like has like his own like writing workshop that he teaches and shit now because he, again, look at that listeners. Like this guy was as most successful as you can get as a writer making millions off the books and the movie deals. And you just have a bad accountant or somebody and they steal all your fucking millions and you're I mean, stuck that's... teaching workshops and having a podcast, you know, <laughs> that's why that fucking masterclass thing exists right yeah all these fucking all these amazing people who should be filthy fucking rich like going i want to share my secrets with you come listen to me and pay this amount of monthly i mean the deal for that is great right yeah but like i don't know if i really want to hear any of those people talk about how they do anything but I mean, shit, there's a lot of people on there. That might be good. Yeah, it's, uh, and my thing, before we move off Bukowski, uh, fiction or poetry for Bukowski, if you had to pick one? Um, if I had to pick one that I would 
read forever and never go back to the other, I think I would pick his poetry. There's so much more there and so much more of it. Um, although I think, I think as a fiction writer, like he, I don't think there's anyone who could touch him. And I feel like because of him writing for like the, like porn mags and all that other fucking shit and the stuff he put in those to make them salacious so he could fucking get paid and shit like that. Um, that has tarnished his like short stories. Like his short stories are better than his novels. Yeah. You know, like his short stories are fucking like hysterical. Like I, read them when I can. I listen to them when I have nothing else to do, you know, and I'm just like trying to fucking like relax or whatever. I'll fucking just laugh and laugh and laugh. Like they're fucking hysterical. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, um, I would, I would probably say the exact same where it's like his poetry is what I first encountered. And then his fiction, it's, 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 it's good depending on which book you get but it's kind of just like long versions of his poems you know like just like yeah. longer versions like i read post office yeah i read women i read pulp and like all that and like yeah they're fine but like yeah his poetry is really i would say the same where it's i'm at, really you know? pissed i didn't start with his poetry like i wonder how like i would have because like a lot of like you said like when you read his poetry you realize a lot of these poems are like a different perspective almost of things that you've already read about and other stuff, you know, and like just going in on the poems, like naked without having any of that back shit. I wonder what I would have felt about certain poems compared to others. Like I was just doing, um, the Bukowski book club thing on my YouTube channel. And I was reading like, um, tragedy of the leaves and to the whore who stole my poems and, <laughs> um, like just reading them for the members or whatever. And, um, the $340 horse and the hundred dollar horror, like there's like a lot of really good ones. And I don't really like his early shit as much as I like his shit from the eighties, which sounds fucking crazy to say, but I feel like he wasn't trying to impress anybody anymore in the eighties where in the sixties and seventies, I feel like he was still wanting that acceptance from academia and from, you know, the literati or whoever the fuck it is. And by the eighties when he was like, Oh shit, like I've made it, I've done it. Like I don't need to right. fucking, suck up like i could just do whatever the fuck i want now like that's my favorite period of him yeah and he was kind of established by that point he was literally making a living again not a great one listeners but he was literally i think it was like a couple hundred bucks a week or something which was enough to make a well, living dude i was just looking in um and on 1970 or was it 71 Oh, wait, no, it was 73, because this, this came out in 74. So in 1973, he made over um, $180,000. Damn. He probably off squandered of his, all of right. it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. He was very... Because um, it's said that when his dad died and he got left the house, um, 
like the legend is, is that he blew it all on the track. But people close to him are like, no, he had that money saved away right. and he barely touch it and like only use it when he needed it kind of thing, you know? So yeah. he was very frugal. Um, That's always a question. Also, yeah. Like it's always like a thing I have about Bukowski with like, you know, how much of it is fictional and how much of it is confessional, you know, with this kind of, I guess when you're a writer, you're always embellishing, you know, you're always getting little flourishes, you're exaggerating because you want to make a story, right? You want to make yeah. it a more entertaining story than it would be just a normal everyday interaction. So I get mm -hmm. that. And there is some creative license, but you know, yeah, like you said, I think a lot of people, when they come to it, they, they take it all as straight confessional which a yeah. lot of it is, a lot of it is, you mm -hmm. know, which is a lot of the appeal. But, I mean, he, raw. he even yeah. says, he says that like, he like churches it up a little bit to right. make it more exciting. Cause life is fucking boring. Um, but like life a lot of these numbers and boring. shit. Yeah. I must oh, not fuck. say so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like he has a lot of his papers at, um, you see Santa Barbara. And in those papers are a lot of his contracts and um, I guess a lot of return checks and shit like that. So like there's like record of like how much was made. Like he made like like he was making ridiculous amount of money in Germany for his German right. translations, like eighty thousand dollars here, fifty thousand dollars there. Um, and Germany's then the second, big readers, big readers yeah, over there yeah. in Germany. Yeah. The, the second the second printing of Notes of a Dirty Old Man, he got a ridiculous amount of money because I think he got a $10,000 advance for it for the first printing and then got like a, I want to say either 50 or 60,000 for the second printing. And so all, and then he sold the rights to um, Tales of Ordinary Madness and Post Office that year. And neither one of them had a movie come out of it. Right. But but he fucking made like another like twenty five grand right. off of the option. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, he was yeah. just so like from the seventies on, like as much as like he kind of makes it sound like things were rough, it was rough just because he didn't change his lifestyle for like another ten years. But like the money was fucking coming in. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, even Stephen King has stories like that. So Stephen King, I think, is is, is the second richest author in the world behind J.K., you know? Oh, I was going to say franchise. The, the Bible? Yeah, I think J.K. is the richest author in the world because she like became crazy. a billionaire off that off that mm. stuff. But uh, I think Stephen King's second place, he's, he's like net worth is like over $400 million or something. He oh always talks God. about, you know, in the 70s when he sold Carrie, he said, I got 2500 bucks. And then it was two years later, <laughs> the movie was finally made. And then they sold the paperback rights after that for like, you know, 400K or something. Because oh. the, the movie had come out. So yeah. then that's, he was still broke as fuck, you know, even after Carrie and Salem's Lot came out until the movie was made. And then he got like big money for the first time. And then, you know, the rest is history because he came like yeah. a hot, hot product. But fuck yeah. That's just My how favorite it works. story yeah. like that is. Um, Fucking Kurt Cobain, The Day Nevermind came out, was on a curb. He just got kicked out of his apartment because he couldn't pay the rent. He was on a curb with a box of all of his worldly possessions and his guitar and just sitting there on the curb while Nevermind is fucking, like, in stores for the yeah. first day. It just, like, like, it's just, it's crazy. Like, how quick he fucking blew up, dude. 
which yeah. we talked about before. I remember reading about that being a big Kurt Cobain guy with uh, when Bleach came out, you know, like the record company didn't even want to pay for it. So they were like paying for the recording sessions themselves. Yeah, it cost 600 bucks. Right? Yeah, yeah, like putting out yeah. Bleach and they could barely scrape together that. And Dave Grohl wasn't living in Seattle at the time. He had to like drive in from like, you know, three hours away to like record the drum tracks. And they were thinking about getting rid of him, like kicking him out of the band because he lived too far away. You couldn't, you know. Yeah. I think like, there's another drummer on some of the tracks on that. Right. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Girl wasn't living in Seattle at the oh, time. Dude, that right? album's yeah. so good. I love yeah. Bleach. Bleach is fucking tits. It dude. changed. I know everybody points to Nevermind. And Nevermind did have more of a cultural impact. But the first yeah. turning of that 1989. Oh. Like, and I guess, like, what's what, like Pearl Jam and should it come out with records? But it was still like Nirvana changed that forever with bleach and then yeah never mind and then in the thing is and... is that like pearl jam allison chains um soundgarden they were bands who were still influenced by the metal bands that were the rock bands that were still doing shit whereas nirvana was like i hate all of this right like we're he's a big different. pansies and guy. they were yeah, yeah, totally yeah. different dude they were yeah. completely different I know he was a big pansies guy and, uh, 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 you know, all those fucking eighties punk guys that were like coming out of there mm -hmm. doing like crazy circle jerk and shit. And like in the seventies, like doing all that crazy shit. And that's literally, yeah, you can tell it just separates the music by so much. Like, and he, yeah. he they didn't, they had hooks too, you know, I mean, Pearl Jam songs had hooks. Sure. Like, you know, daughters, one of probably their, my favorite fucking Pearl Jam song. And it's like, that has a fucking hook. But I mean, like, I remember uh, when I saw the video for Alive for the first time. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. I was like, what is happening? This is so great. And yeah. then like, I saw Outshined by Soundgarden. I'm like, oh, my God, my life's changing. Like, every time something fucking happened, I was like, oh, my God, the world's yeah. different. It was. I know some listeners that if it's hard to remember back pre-internet, I, I think I don't know what the ages are. I think that YouTube tells me that like the YouTube viewers are between the ages of like 24 and 34. So I'm thinking I have a, a range of people <laughs> that were on that. But uh, if you yeah. didn't live through the pre-internet era, like how cultural icons came into being, they weren't memed into existence. Like they had to make something first and then yeah. it took the world by storm and it was usually slow. Like it wasn't right away. And then all of a sudden, you know, never mind or something drops and the yeah. world fucking can it's never the same after like like before the internet it would take you 10 years to become an overnight success yeah Tarantino, now it, yeah now it probably takes like i don't know like a good meme and knowing someone cool to be able to share it tarantino always says that especially now that he's older like looking back on his career and shit where he said everybody called me like this hot shot that came out of nowhere like oh this overnight success did reservoir dogs and then won the fucking oscar you know for pulp fiction right after and he was like yeah like i guess technically it was overnight from when i made the movie he's like but it was eight years <laughs> of me mm. eating shit like i worked at a video store dude like eight yeah. years he's like it was not overnight trust me like it was not <laughs> Like a mm -hmm. fucking, oh, I just made one movie and then everybody loved it. No, like he's like, I tried to do this for like almost a decade before I got anything. Uh, yeah. You never see that. You know, we don't like to romanticize that. I think we talked about this a little bit last mm -hmm. last time we chatted with like, you know, people want it to, they don't want to see the hard work that it takes. Like I always say pro athletes or yeah, musicians and stuff where they're just like, 
oh, you know, it's you just do it. Just do it without any work. It just comes natural to them. They're just a natural actor. It's like, yeah, but like <laughs> they like took yeah. decades, their entire life working towards this and, moment. And that's <laughs> why like when you see there's two reasons why, like when you see like a biopic of like some artist or whatever, it's like they were really poor and all this other shit. And then they did something and then something crazy happened and they were successful. It's because they don't have the time to put all that shit in the movie. But second, like the audience doesn't want to, the audience wants to believe that they're special and that if they just do one little thing, like right now, like they could become fucking rich and famous and all this other fucking shit. They don't want to fucking spend 10 years drudging away to fucking do something. They want the fucking myth. They want the fantasy, you know? Yeah. And that's why most writers, yeah. listeners, too, don't get famous if they get famous at all, or at least, you know, literary fame is a little different than being famous, but it's like, yeah, they don't get that until their 40s, 50s. Why? Well, because it takes decades of writing over and over again until you get good enough that people are like, oh, yeah, you're really good, you know, like, it didn't just happen, <laughs> they didn't just wake up one day doing that, but yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about the blood rag, your, your baby. Yeah. With, uh, how did that get started? Uh, you know, was it always something you wanted to do? Was it just a lightning bolt to the brain one day? You know, how did how did you come about putting that out? Because you've only been doing that a couple of years, right? Or like a year or two? Um, no, it's just we just had our first anniversary with it. Oh, okay, um, I, just a year, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I was doing um, broadsides. I was putting broadsides out like every month for my own shit. And I liked the idea of something that you can just like hang up somewhere and always look at, you know, whether it's in your room or outside or whatever. And then I was thinking, I'm like, Oh dude, if I could do like a zine that was just, cause like you could do like one page zines, like, but fold it. So you could have an eight page zine out of one piece of paper, or you could have a smaller one that's 16 pages off of one piece of paper. And then I was like using that idea of a one page zine and the idea of a broadside. I was like, oh, I could just get as many poets as I could fit on one piece of paper. And then people could hang it up or people can glue it to a wall outside or um, just pass whatever. It out. Yeah, just pass yeah, it, pass it, it out. Yeah. And um, so it, and it, it seemed like a very inexpensive way of getting people's work out there and um so i did the first one if you're hearing this it's because you are listening to the free public feed of heavy board to get complete uncensored uninterrupted full access to this podcast become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board that's right heavy board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. Like I, I wanted to do the first one. And so I put a thing out saying I'm, I was going to do it. And when people submitted, people submitted like three or four or five poems. And I was like, oh, 
okay, well, shit, I guess I could do like two or three more of these off of this because I have the submissions for it. So, yeah, I'll just do that. And then I kept getting submissions for it. So it's it was like a thing where I'm like, well, I guess I'll just keep fucking doing this right. until nobody fucking gives a shit anymore. <clears throat> and so, yeah, so it's been pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. That's awesome. Little, little love from LA listeners. <laughs> love from LA. But that's Asshole. awesome, yeah. And you even you even created prizes for writers. And I, I just wanted to ask, you know, or maybe just you know walk me through the thought process. You know, why that's important. Why you felt the need to offer an alternative to you know the kind of the established literary awards we always hear about in like magazines and shit. Well, there is. Let me see if I can get this up from right. Is it right here? I don't know if I is it right here. Oh, okay. So the reason why that even happened was because I did. So this is my um, winner of your mom's sodomy prize for poetry. This is my <laughs> new book. Okay, and I did this as a joke. Because, like, there were all these people who, like, get their books put out because they won some fucking prize of someone's something or another, like, all this other shit. And it's supposed to be a big fucking deal. And I remember I was talking to um, Matthew Buckley Smith from Slee Ricketts. And he has... um, his first book came out because he won a book prize. And then his book that's coming out this year is coming out because he won a book prize and i was just like i was kind of teasing him or something i don't know exactly how it went but i was just like you know what dude i'm gonna fucking put my next book out and it's gonna be like um i can't remember what it was something i'm like winner your mom's prize for butt sex or like i had some (laughs) stupid fucking name for it and i was kind of joking and he's like oh dude you should totally do that and then as soon as somebody says to me oh dude you should totally do that i'm like oh yeah you're fucking damn right dude it's like someone saying i dare you to do that and i'm like yeah it's gonna fucking happen dude because you just fucking dared me to do it um so it was like a joke and then so the book comes out and i was doing a live stream and some people were saying like oh you should like have that be like a yearly thing like you give out the your mom sodomy prize for poetry to somebody every year and i was just like oh that's kind of funny like people like um awards and all this stuff and a lot of people who fucking send stuff to me like submissions it'll have all the awards they've won or got shortlisted for or whatever and so that was in my head and then I was doing another live stream with like anarchy crew peeps and all this stuff. And I was like going, okay, so we're going to have like the first anniversary of the blood rag. Should we do anything for it? And like, we were like coming up with all these ideas. And I I don't think I came up with it. I think somebody else did. They're (laughs) like, Oh, you should do like a, a prize for it. Like for, and I was just like, and everyone got all excited and I'm like, Oh, okay. Everyone's excited. Let's fucking do this thing. I'll fucking do it. Um, but that's usually how most ideas happen. You know, it's like on accident, like fucking around. I mean, the whole reason why the cover of this book is a picture of me on the toilet is because somebody fucking said, Oh, you should have a picture of you taking a shit on the fucking cover of the book prize book. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And then, um, somebody said that, Oh dude, you know what you should do? You should give out eight by tens, like signed eight by tens of that. 
um, <laughs> that you could send out to people who supported the campaign. So I have like a stack of big ass photos of me fucking taking a shit. So those are going out soon for <laughs> people who got those. But yeah, everything starts off as like a dumb idea and then it just becomes something not dumb, you know? Oh yeah. I had a friend in grad school. He was a fiction writer, but he would, uh, he would make up prizes in his bio. Every time he submitted a bio somewhere, he would add, and he would use like friends names. So he would use like, yeah. like the Andrew Wittstadt prize for fiction or something that like doesn't exist. Right. But he's just like making a joke out of it. And he would like put that yeah. into his like resume, <laughs> his like thing. And he would like do a different one every time. Just like a random person's name, like a prize. Because yeah. there's so many too. Even if you go through prizes on like a, like oh, a yeah. poets and writers database or something, it's just like a random person. <laughs> Sometimes you've never even heard of well, this person. He's not even like a famous the, writer or poet. Like the funny thing is, is that the first poem I ever got published was in like 2002. I want to say, and it was just this thing I saw in the back of a magazine, like saying like submissions are open for x contest or whatever and so i'm like ah fuck it i'll send something in for it and then i get a thing saying like your poem's been selected and i got a fucking like certificate like a little award thing with like a silver or gold fucking stamp on it or something and i don't even remember what the fuck it was and they're like if you want the book that this poem's going to be put in you know you could buy the book and I'm like, fuck you, you scam artist motherfuckers. Like, keep your fucking prize and this whole fucking thing. And so, like, I just, like, never thought about it again. And um, it came up, like, I brought it up to somebody. I'm like, yeah, dude, I don't know. Like, it was some bullshit crap thing and whatever. And they're like, dude, that was, like, a real award. Like, I think that was, like, a real thing. And you, like, <laughs> just kind of blew that off. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I did or not. Like, I think it was bullshit. <laughs> So there's this whole thing where, like, I might have actually won something that probably could have helped me. But at the same time, like, I thought it was bullshit. So I never know. I've never won anything. So don't feel bad. I've never won anything for writing or anything like that. Uh, The most I ever got close is I got second place in a fucking, like, you know, college-wide, just my college uh, contest. Mm -hmm which, you know, like 10 people submitted to, I'm sure. So it was like, I got second place. I didn't even win. So it's not, <laughs> I've never won a prize. I don't like, I've never won any. And I've kind of resigned myself to be like, yeah, I'm not the type that's going to be getting uh, awards for, for what I do. Yeah, the, the only award I actually have won, I think, um, I got best use of nudity <laughs> in um, 20... 10 from the polygrind film festival in las vegas for my film vaginal holocaust (laughs) so was it a horror movie yeah it's about a a vagina that becomes a vampire damn is like in the vein of teeth like the uh no it's more like teeth right well what when when did teeth come out ah 2011 like we we made it in 2009 we made it in january of 2009 so really you should be suing teeth for stealing your (laughs) eye yeah it it was very like last house on the left meets um some backwoods vampire thing i don't fucking know (laughs) it was fun it was a fun movie uh 
how do you make your living as a poet? You know, and I, you don't have to go into numbers or anything, but just kind of, is it just Patreon subscriptions, the courses? I know you have an Etsy shop and stuff. Is it a combination of a bunch of different things for listeners out there? Like, how, how do you manage to, uh, to grind together a living? It is a lot of different things. It's um, like I put out a chapbook every month. Um, so And you sell that, right? <clears throat> to... Yeah. Like um, I'm sure I have copies of something right here. But like this was a split chapbook I did with me and Bunny Wild. Um, this is the first issue of the Bloodshed Review, which is like my little lit journal thing. And then the new one, issue two, came out yesterday. So that's out now. Um, and then I have like little stickers and the blood rag. You could either download it for free or get it off my shop. I don't know what else I have over here. I don't think I have anything else over here. Um, but like that's a big portion of what I make. And I also have books on Amazon that I'm still making money on. Right. And that's a big portion of what I make. Um, I have my YouTube channel monetized. So I get ad revenue from that. I have members on YouTube. So I get money from that. Um, I do mentorship um, with people and do that. Um, I, oh, I do, um, affiliate marketing, right? Like, uh, through on, YouTube, with Amazon, Amazon and other things yeah. on my website, on YouTube, um, wherever I could throw a link that's for somebody a, that's to a click. Big one, listeners. That's a big one. Yeah. You yeah. Gotta, if you don't know how to do that, look into it with the affiliate marketing for real you're trying to start something. It's hard to like, I, I never think of my affiliate marketing as the thing that I'm going to like pay my bills with that month right? Yeah. <clears throat> because some months it's like $20 and then other months it's like 6,000. Right. Like you, you just don't know what people are going to buy once they get over to the those Amazon. things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like I, I was just on uh, poetry says um, talking about this and like this year is where like with everything going like the way trends have been trending that this year, like just off of my poetry, like I will be able to live. And then all awesome. the other yeah. shit is like extra, you know? Awesome. And so hopefully yeah. I can start saving and like actually live like a fucking human instead of a cockroach. But like, <laughs> Like I get mute, I get money off of my music. Like um, all of my bands and solo shit is through DistroKid right now, so it's on all the platforms. And so I get shit from that, and like I usually get enough from that to pay one bill a month. So that's cool, you know. And I mean, having but again, like the only reason why I think I'm able to do all of this is because of the amount of product I have, you know, like yeah. I have, I have over 50 poetry chat books and, um, I have like 50 albums. Um, I've like my film money is pretty much, I'm going to be surprised if I get a check in January for like my film royalties, like the, the life of a film is like only about seven to eight years. Right. And so like residuals from that 
will eventually taper off and then hopefully I could get the rights back to my movies. And then if I do that, then I could put something else together or just put them up on YouTube. Like if I fucking right. put my movies up on YouTube, I would be doing great. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just having a lot of shit, right. You know, is we, how you do. And that's, that's important listeners. You notice, you list, notice how many things Matt listed with this, like he's doing all of them. And then like, these are all, they're all related to business like they're all like related to uh your work and your art but like they're all separate businesses too so you mm-hmm. have to keep track of like you know matt just listed off like half a dozen oh. things that you and, have to keep track I, of and market and promote and uh, yeah no totally yeah. like and then there's other things like i've done book covers for people i've done formatting for people and like i don't promote doing that but if it if something falls in my lap i'm gonna take it and then um just within the last year I've been selling my art and like my paintings and shit like that. And that's something that I want to get better at doing and like pushing forward because like, again, like the ROI on that kind of shit is a lot more than like my books. Like I could sell like an original painting for hundreds of dollars as opposed to, like here's my nine dollar chat book you know what i'm saying yeah Um, so i gotta get a little better at that but um yeah that's awesome man what uh what advice would you give to writers starting out you know trying to build something like you have like a business or even just like a labor of love like type podcast or press or something there's a couple things probably but like first would be that no one is going to care about your shit as much as you care about your shit. So don't wait for people to fucking do shit. Don't wait on like hearing back from so-and-so to do this. Like your, your art is your baby and you are going to treat that baby better than anybody else will. So don't do this thing that I see a lot of people do where they're like, oh, well, you know, like I have someone shopping my thing around. Like I have someone like, great. They're also shopping like 17 other fucking things. They don't give a fuck. Because they got to make a living too. Yeah. So yeah. So So, like if you want and you believe like just with all your heart and your project, you hustle that fucking shit out there i almost said something fucking horrible <sighs> but yeah go for like, it yeah no you just hustle that thing and then the other thing is is um time waits for no one and um like every second that you think like oh someday i'm gonna do this thing um, it's never going to happen if you keep doing that because <laughs> yeah. someday, someday is always farther away. Like you have to do something and do it now. And like time is always going to win. Entropy is a real fucking thing. Like we are always going to lose. Like time's going to win the battle or win the war. And we just have to fight really fucking hard. So knowing that like we're already behind the eight ball the whole fucking time, <laughs> It's just you putting shit out and you getting your work out there and you building your audience, you building your fan base, you treating the people who buy your art like fucking 
the best human beings on the planet and do whatever you can to make them happy. You know, like within reason, obviously. But I was gonna say yeah. it's very Shakespearean tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, right? Like kind of like... <sighs> Dude, it's just like I, I mean, I've worked with so many people trying to like put their careers on track and like build a plan for them and all this other shit. And everything's like, oh well, you know, like once like I get a bigger place or once like I have like an office that I could like type in, you know, that's really important. Or like, you know, when I get like this new um, like promotion at my job, I'm going to have more money. So if I have more money, I could probably, it's just like putting all of these obstacles. And if you're someone who does that, you will always find another obstacle to put in there because, and like, here's the thing that fucking I nail people with all the time. I'm like, okay, so in seven months you're going to find out like your chick's pregnant. Then what? Right. Then are you going to put off writing that book until your kid's fucking 20? Right. Like, what, do you, what do you fucking do then? Like there is no time. Like you either do the thing or you fucking don't, you know? I remember uh, I read a uh, Ted Kuzer's like craft book that he wrote. Uh, he said when he was young, starting out, you know, he had like his wife and he like shared this one bedroom apartment or whatever, and he had no place to write. So what he did is he just they got like a, they bought like a dining room table or whatever, and then it came mm -hmm. in like a huge big box, right? That you had to like put together. He so what he did is took the box and just like sat it in a corner of the apartment, and he would like go into the box and just like write in the box. <laughs> that was his office. Like that's just that's you know, awesome. Yeah, like you just have to find a way to be like make this time, you know, yeah. make a place for it. Whatever you have to do, if you have to go sit out on your porch, to go hide in your closet. I think even Ocean Vuong said this when he was living in New yeah, York. He had I was like just four roommates. Yeah. yeah, he started writing this. Go into the closet, and he would just sit down with like a laptop or a notebook and just start, just to get away. Okay, so like this is a space. Yeah. This is a space that I, people I are away from, and this is my art. I, you know, I'm trying to remember what he said. He said I saw some interview, and he's like. Um, yes, and don't think that the irony is not lost on me. Oh, yeah, be, being the gay guy in the closet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah dude. Uh, literally, literally, cool. physically in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> like writing your, 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 your shit. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Uh, a few things that I have. I have a few questions that I want. There's like less writing stuff, although there's still writing shit in them. Uh, I want to run through and uh, yeah. then I figure we take like five minutes or something. I'm going to ask you to drop your handles and then we can do some workshop shit because I was going to split it into a couple episodes oh, and yeah, I want to yeah. do one just entirely on the workshops. But yeah, know, your, you know. um, your, episode, your thing I did with you is going to be three episodes. The content cool. must flow, boy. I, I understand. Uh, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> you got to have that content. <laughs> has to uh, flow like the sparrows of Capistrano <laughs> or however that fucking thing is. Oh, yes. It must flow. The people demand it. Uh, is poetry more popular than ever? <sighs> Um, yes and no. Interesting. Yes, it's more popular among people on Instagram and people of that ilk. But for, like, formal verse poetry, I don't think it's very popular at all right now. <clears throat> and I think um, the establishment has made it so. Yeah, and the fact that the, the even the big five or however many it is are like pushing celebrity poets and insta poets 
harder than any like MFA type poet like tells you like what is looked and I know not all MFA poets are formal poets so like I apologize for that but just traditional poetry what people assume poetry is I think is the thing that's not very popular and in another generation I think it'll be completely like obscure and out of fashion altogether that's interesting yeah and it is like a weird paradox right where like you can look at sales numbers and like some of those Instagram TikTok poets like they're selling 300,000 copies you know like they're selling 300 yeah. of a poetry book for listeners yeah. that don't know 300,000 copies is fantasy land for even a hit fiction book okay like that is yeah. fantasy land like most uh big poetry books sell maybe a thousand copies if <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and that's like a that's like a huge right. like success poetry book you know so whatever but um i just did an episode because i've been trying to find like actual poetry sales numbers for years and i finally found something and did a podcast episode about it um like a month ago and um i was just shocked like the like i had thoughts of what i thought the information would be and it, this just like blew past what i thought you know so um trying to remember what the article was called i found an article that had a bunch of stuff in it i can't remember i'll try to find it for you yeah and it is interesting that there's that divide too right like that you mentioned with this divide between the, the instagram style of poetry uh which is kind of emo kind of lovesick puppy dog uh i would even say juvenile and then there's like the like you said the kind of formal verse or or um but there's this thing in the middle too, because like, like I wouldn't consider like Ocean Vong a formal fucking poet, right, right, right. right. But I also wouldn't consider him a insta poet. But I feel like people like him are also kind of like look down their nose at the insta poets, which is just like I'm like you guys are fucking basically on the same team. Like, what are you guys doing? Like, one's in the outfield, one's in the infield. Well, What's well, the fucking problem? Vaughn got his uh, got his six hundred thousand dollar Guggenheim, as I think is the difference right there. Yeah, got that six hundred k in his pocket. I guess they pay that out over a couple of years, so he doesn't have it yet. But yeah, yeah, uh, I would need crazy. a fucking grant. Well, like you said, it, it is like a weird in between. Like yeah, like the formal stuff has never really been popular. Like the only writer that I know that's writing about uh, in kind of formal meter and rhyme is khaki wilkinson is the only one i know that's doing it and doing it great and i think she's a former hopkins uh alum as well i think she teaches mm. in ohio somewhere cincinnati or something don't quote me on that but i think she's the only one that i and, and, and you know she's good but like, again it's 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 meter and rhyme so is that you know is that ever going to be that popular even though it's good well done poetry you know it's a uh, seriously all like this is i can't believe i'm giving this advice out but i'm gonna fucking help the formalists out there right now <laughs> formalist if you find a celebrity to write a book of formal poetry and help them do it to where it is perfect that book will come out and every fucking motherfucker will try to emulate that and formal poetry will be popular again but like it's like 
formalists can't like go i would never do something that filthy oh like it's this whole thing like like you're killing yourself it's like <clears throat> i don't know it's like you're like i can't even come up with an analogy that feeding doesn't have into to do the, with yeah. or shit yeah <laughs> they're <laughs> feeding like... into the cultural irrelevancy yeah you're making yourself exactly. less relevant because of it i've thought about that i thought about just like dming like people will be like hey i'll go i'll ghostwrite your book <laughs> like exactly, i know you're not going to write like, it so uh, <laughs> i'll ghostwrite it tell me like, the things you like i like yeah. taco bell i like um shoes and taco bell and bags I like bags, Taco Bell, and shoes. Yeah. Write my formal poetry. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's crazy. Oh, I've but actually. Yeah, that's how I don't fucking go, dude. Yeah. You, give me one second here. I gotta fucking get my cord real quick. Yeah, no worries. plugged in good <laughs> everything's fine now awesome uh i wanted to ask this i like to ask all the writers that come on what's your writing routine like your editing routine hmm well i typically don't edit anything like i even when i was writing fiction like most of the stuff i put out was first drafts um i just i would lose interest in what I wrote after I wrote it and I would be wanting to write the next thing, you know, with poetry, I feel like when I write a poem, it's as honest and real as it is. And if I try to edit it, I'm going to do it in a way where like, I might be like, I don't want people to know about this. Like, this is kind of too personal. Maybe I shouldn't say this. And so I would start kind of, uh, in my eyes, being phony and, like, taking shit out that I felt, like, bared too much of my soul, you know? And so long, long time ago, I decided that if I'm going to fucking do this, like, I need to not do that. And the best way to not do that is to, once it's down, let it lie. And there it is. And I can fucking walk away and do something else now. You know? is, it, is it like a daily? Do you daily writing or? Um, I I want to say I try to write daily. But like, like last night, I wrote four poems. And some nights I'll write. Um, I have two different chapbooks that are... Um, <clears throat> One's called One Night and one's called Two Night. And both of those are 20 poems that I wrote in like one sitting. And I do this other workshop, which we'll talk about later, where I write or get the people to write a chapbook in an hour, you know, like 10 to 15 poems in an hour, you know. And um, so that's how that goes if if it's up to me like the, when i feel the most creative and the most flow i will have some like old ska on or something and um i'll be like dancing around i'll be like a bottle of wine in and um 
I typically like to stand because I'm dancing while I'm doing it. And I'm like fucking chain smoking and drinking like a typical fucking rider, like shocker. Oh my God, no way. And I'll just be fucking clacking keys until I pass out, you know? Um, and some months I write over 200 poems. Some months I write four. Right. You know, like there are times when I feel like I'm forcing it or I'm trying to be poetic when I'm writing. And when I feel that I'm like, I got to stop. Like, like I'm trying right now to sound like a poet. Like (laughs) I, I I like, what do you call it? Like there's this one poem I wrote and, um, there was a bunch of consonants in it. And when I was writing it, I was conscious of trying to do that. And I immediately felt like a dirty, dirty bitch. Uh And I'm like, I'm like, that's not me. Like, I'm not going to sit here and like agonize over trying to make these words sound good together. They're either going to sound good together or they're not. And so then I have to take a step back. And sometimes like I won't write for like three or four days until like something happens and I feel like I can just flow if I'm writing a novel, I will sit down and write anywhere from 6,000 to 12,000 words a day and just like type, 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 type wow. and not do yeah. anything. And so like that's how I will put my novels together and I'll do that until the novel's done. Because if I spend any time away from it, I'm going to get bored and I'm going to want to fucking do something else. Right. So. Like, um, I think my best day was 16,000 words and like, um, and I pretty much put them all in. Like, I don't really like cut shit out. So, um, but yeah, that was a book called, uh, the case of the crystal pubis. So there you go. And do you, (laughs) do you prefer like nighttime writing? You were saying like, uh, when it's dark out and everybody else is going to bed and um yes let me make all this noise real quick hang on when i was living with my kid and raising my kid um i would write whenever i could so like i would get up early and just like get the rust off and just start typing 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 and I would do that until like there were so many distractions that I couldn't do it anymore. Now that I don't have those kind of distractions, I tend to write at night unless like something hits me hard and I'm like, I need to fucking write this down like right, right now. Right. And then like I'll just write that one poem and then go on about my day. Or I'll write a bunch of lines out that hit me in the head that I'll come back to that night or something like that. Are you a, are you a on the toilet writer at all or just an on the toilet reader? I think a writer too. I have a book called shit poems uh-huh. that are poems about shit in the bathroom and nasty stuff like that. And I think I wrote like a lot of that while I was on the toilet. So yeah. Yeah. yeah I, ke- <laughs> so I keep a notebook a... tucked behind the <laughs> trash can in the, in the bathroom. And, uh, if I'm ever struck, I'd like to keep notebooks everywhere. Do you handwrite or mostly type or combination or? I mostly type. Like I got my knuckles, you know, like type hard across my knuckles. (laughs) (laughs) But um, like, 
I, I'm a typer because I could type faster than I could write. And my brain goes faster than I could keep up with it. And a lot of times if I'm writing, like, I'll forget what I just thought. And then I'll spend right. all this time going, what was that? But I will say, I don't know if this is a Pisces thing or what. But, like, I will spend... And it's going to happen a lot now because it's summer and it's hot as fucking balls. But like I, I took like three or four showers yesterday and I'll just like stand there under the water, like water running on my head. And for some reason that like clears my head so much that just like ideas and like lines like fly through my brain. And so I'll be in the shower for hours and then come out and write something that I think is fucking amazing and then like I'll do that until I start sweating balls again and then I'll go get back in the shower again and this whole process just keeps repeating. But I also have alcohol and smokes in the shower with me, so I uh, could just be and thinking that's a good idea. Shower but, cigarette. Yeah, there you go. Oh my god, dude. Woody, Woody Allen said something similar where he would always say like when he was stuck he would go get a shower. So sometimes he'd shower like four times a day or something just to like, when he's working on something, you know, a script or whatever. I'll tell you what, this is kind of a stupid fucking thing, but it's worked for me. Dude, like stupid things even work if, so well. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Like if I ever feel like, like nothing's happening or nothing new is happening, I'll get a hotel room like down the street or like a city over and just like spend a couple days in a hotel with a couple bottles of wine and some cigarettes and stand in the shower, chain smoke and drink in the shower. And then I could like kind of messy the room up and I don't feel as bad about it. And I'll just right there and just being in a different environment, even if it's like down the street and like, and I'm not trying to be weird, but like being naked in the different environment, being vulnerable in the different environment like gives you a different perspective and a different um it's just different and you I, get something different than you normally would i 100 percent agree i 100 percent agree being like you said being nude even even that like you could do that or uh even just like changing the scene or setting like you said get a hotel room or i'll do i'll even change rooms in the house like if i'm yeah i usually divide it into two shifts a day if i can and like I'll do a morning shift and then an evening shift and then I'll usually change rooms at some point. So like the evening shift is a different vibe than the morning, sh you know, kind of thing. And you're like, it, it helps. Dude, like, yeah. like you are in such the Mecca for what I'm talking about. Like, cause you could just be like, Oh, I'm going to go to Fremont. See you later. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go stay a, a night at fucking four Queens or some shit. I think taking a drive. <laughs> drive like if i i have yeah. this routine that i have especially in the summer months when i'm not teaching so i have a lot of time on my hands to do and work on these projects taking a drive i think it's the same thing as taking a shower almost where you're yeah you're clearing your head a little bit like it's you're you're, yeah. you're doing something like even like if and if i don't do that i do feel like my head is a little too jumbled just taking a drive around a city or even when i was mm -hmm. living not in vegas like vegas is great to drive around in especially some of those areas around fremont and shit yeah you can see some ideas or get inspired but like just the head clearing like the way that you can focus and it's 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 it sounds crazy right some people are thinking about oh that's ridiculous well 
yeah, it is a little ridiculous, but it does work. Like it does yeah. help you clear your head just so you when, can focus. When I yeah. lived when I lived out in the desert doing the homestead. Hey. Would you believe there's still an extra hour of conversation left? Well, there is. Matt and I chatted for hours while recording this. And if you want to hear the full uncensored episode, you need to subscribe at patreon.com slash heavyboard, where you will receive full uncensored episodes like this without any interruptions, ads, or anything else. And that's for subscribers only at patreon.com slash heavyboard. So what are you waiting for? Stop sitting on the sidelines. Subscribe today and join the conversation. Awesome. Uh, Matt Wall, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Drop your handles for everybody. Where can they find your stuff? Uh, uh, if you go to IHateMattWall.com, that's like my main thing. And then um, PoeticAnarchy.com, I think either takes you to the press, like the early press page, or it takes you to workshops. I can't remember what. But um, on Instagram, it's I hate Matt Wall or at Poetic Anarchy Press, and then on YouTube, it's at Matt Wall. Awesome, awesome. And this has been uh, go check that out, listeners. Of course, everything that we covered will be linked in the description. I'm going to link all those in the description as well. So check out Matt Wall's stuff. Matt, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a total blast. Totally. Thank you so much, man. Love it. Of course. This has been Heavy Board. Heavy Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.